Happy to welcome back to Forward Guidance, Jerry Dillian of the Daily Dirt Nap and author of No Worries, How to Live a Stress-Free Financial Life. Jared, you have had uh, some incredible contrarian calls that you've shared on this program about being short oil and natural gas last summer, about being bullish on stocks uh, in October, bullish on stocks uh, in January or February of this year. And now, now that the stock market has rallied this entire year with a few hiccups, you actually think the highs are in and you are quite bearish. Is that my understanding? Yeah, very bearish. Yeah. Well, tell us why. Of course, the answer is going to be sent, right? Like that's yeah. what I do. Like sentiment has gotten to extraordinarily bullish levels. It's a, there's a couple of signposts, you know, the Blackstone video that everybody's been watching. Mike Wilson going bullish, uh, stuff like that. Those are those are kind of like the big flashing lights that I saw in the last couple of days. You know, AII bulls versus bears call option activity, you know, all that stuff. And also from a technical standpoint, we put in a 13 cell on DeMarc sequential and combo today. Okay. So it's, you know, it's just a perfect storm of shit. And, you know, I, I've been, I, I missed the move higher. I missed that whole move, but I think the move. When, lower, when, which move? You did not miss the move. Until October, you were bullish. From, from 4150 to 4700, that move we just had. I missed that move. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. But I think I think this, I, I think we are going to have a significant correction. It could be a bear market. Somebody just asked me how far I think this could go, and I said thousands of basis points. I think this is the beginning of a pretty big bear market. I think the recession that everybody's been waiting for, for the last 18 months since the yield curve inverted, I think it's going to happen for a whole bunch of reasons, housing being one of them. Uh, we've been in a manufacturing recession for a while. So yeah, I'm a bear. And I think today is I think today is a starting gun, you know. Yeah. So we're recording the afternoon of Wednesday the 20th. And in the afternoon, about an hour ago, the stock market kind of fell out of bed. Uh, you, you, so you think this could be it. And in particular, how are you shorting stock? You shorted the index or you're short particular stocks? Well, first of all, let me say that I put out a newsletter update around 11 a.m. saying to exit long positions and get short. And the market collapsed a couple hours later. So, I mean, the timing could not have been better. I'm going to get short the index through S&P futures. One of... The things about you know me writing a newsletter is that I give my subscribers 24 hours to act before I do. Really like a compliance thing. And what sucks is is that I have missed out on this entire move because I can't trade until tomorrow. So, but that's okay because I think there's I think there's a lot further to go in stocks. So, got it. And then, but but you also are thinking about shorting Blackstone, right? Yes. So I published that today. I'm going to be shorting Blackstone tomorrow. I'm probably going to buy long dated puts. Tough business to short stocks though. It's it's much harder than being long. Yeah. And I, I generally, I have not had a lot of success at it. I'm not a really good short seller. You know, I'm, I'm much, I'm much more comfortable playing from the long side. I think Blackstone is kind of unique in that. I mean, look, it's a private equity firm with, 156 billion market cap. It's trading at a 54 PE. It's 
just just to put that in perspective, Citigroup has a 97 billion market cap. Like Blackstone is much much bigger than Citigroup. How about the PE ratios for financial companies? That is that the numbers are all made up. That that's uh, that's a very wise thing you just said. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, Blackstone is expensive, definitely. Yeah, private equity. I don't I don't know. How do you think about it? I a lot of bears and critics have been making points that I find compelling on the asset side of you know you're kind of just waving your magic wand, you're volatility laundering, you're not actually that smart. It's just it's a bull market, and you're making the numbers up. But then on the liability side, I struggle to see how things could kind of unravel if all of your clients, all of the money is tied up for 10 years. I honestly don't know the answer to that, but let me put it this way. Like in times of stress, people want liquidity. You know what I mean? So there's like, I don't know the mechanics. I even said that in my newsletter. I'm like, I have no idea the mechanics of how PE unwinds. Like, I don't know how that happens, but you're looking at an industry where every college kid wants to go work there. Every investment banker wants to go work there. Like it really is like hedge funds in the 2000s. Like when I was working at Lehman Brothers in the 2000s, like everybody was starting a hedge fund. There were like 6,000 hedge funds. All the MBAs wanted to work in hedge funds. It's the exact same thing. And then that unwound. So it's going to be the same thing all over again. I think if they made nine and a half weeks today, the protagonist would be a private equity guy and not a currency trader. Yeah. Okay, Jared, I'm glad you brought that up. I saw, I don't know how, but I saw a tweet of yours from a long time ago saying my favorite movie is nine and a half weeks. I saw the movie. It's not a finance movie. Why do you think it's a finance movie? No trading, no nothing in it. It's, it's, it's yeah, a, so the, 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 romance movie. the protagonist is a Wall Street guy. He's a currency, he's a currency trader. Here's the thing. This is like the zeitgeist of the 80s, right? Like in the 80s, financial people were considered to be the good guys. You know what I mean? Like that was like Mickey Rourke in that movie. He was loving. He was caring. He was a human being. Like when was the last time you saw a movie about a financial person since the financial crisis that portrayed somebody in that light? You know what I mean? I actually would challenge that. I think that he he is a, a little bit of a dark Side. I mean, he he does some pretty tw- twisted things in the movie. He's got a, he's got a strange appetite, and yeah, I, that, I, you know, sometimes you watch a movie from way back, whether nineteen eighties or way even before that, and you're like, oh wow, human nature is the same, nothing ever changes. But then some movies you watch, like nine and a half weeks, I'm like, wow, the nineteen eighties, that was a different time. It's a great movie. It's a great. I'm glad you saw it. I'm glad you saw it. So. Yeah. So your bearish stocks overall, your bearish private equity. What else in particular are you thinking? Well, you know, one of my other big calls that you didn't mention was getting along the front end of the yield curve, um, yep. you know, and that was, I've, I've actually been pretty quiet on Twitter lately, but going back a couple of months ago, you had the higher for longer crowd, you know, they had their hashtag H4L and we weren't going to have a hard landing. We weren't going to have a soft landing. We we're going to have no landing and the economy would continue to be strong and rates would go to six, seven, eight percent. That that was a thesis and that was a completely bullshit thesis um, you know, the Fed is withdrawing their hikes. They're pricing in three cuts next year, which is not a function of the economy. It's a function of the fact that they over-tightened and they're taking back some of those rate hikes. But I've said many times in the newsletter that, you know, I think ultimately twos are going to two and a half percent, tens are going to three and a half percent. You'll have a slightly normal curve. But I think I think rates have a long way to go on the downside. So that's a good call about 
yeah, being bullish rates, that definitely has taken me by surprise, not just the move, but in particular that it has occurred when the economy is still not in a recession. I had thought that, you know, the Fed wouldn't tighten, wouldn't cut rates just because inflation was was going down, you know, the soft landing cuts. I was, I, I, I mean, to be perfectly like candid, like I was early on that. I was a little bit too early on that call. I was about a month early. And I took I took some pain as rates went higher, but ultimately it's been a right call. So yeah, I mean I I got destroyed in October being bullish rates, and it's funny like I actually I was right, but I you know it's much more important to make money than to be right, <laughs> and I can't I can't promise I, that I did the, the latter. But so yeah, I mean when you say the higher for longer, that was a bullshit argument. It it is a question of timing because you were the ultimate higher for longer guy in twenty one twenty one and twenty twenty two, and that was right. Yeah. You know? It's yeah. just, it, it didn't have the name higher for longer, but yeah, there'd be no recession and that there'd be huge inflation. It's just, it's all a question of timing. So two and a half though, that's, that's pretty tight. So you, that that's recessionary pricing. Yeah. You know, I think we'll get a recession. I mean, look like this is really the longest we've had a yield curve inversion without a recession. It's been about 18 months and which has caused people to predict that we're never going to get a recession, but ultimately we will. I don't think it's going to be severe you know i don't think it's going to be anywhere near the magnitude of 2008 but we'll get a recession the fed will respond and i don't think you have to worry about inflation going higher so i don't think that's a concern so you know the core pce is 2.3 percent so the fed is you know plenty plenty of room to manage rates to the downside why do you think inflation has fallen so much this year and why do you think it won't be a problem going forward given that you were an inflationista in 2020, 2021? Well, I think it will be a problem a couple of years from now. Like, I think I think we'll, we'll have to deal with the resurgence of inflation two years, three years, somewhere around that time frame. I don't think we've defeated the inflationary psychology. I, I, I still think people have an inflationary psychology. But no, I mean, the rate hikes, you know, the thing that was, I think I, think I read somewhere that Powell actually raised rates more and faster than Volcker did in the 80s. It was from a much lower base, obviously. But he, but in terms of the magnitude of the rate hikes and the speed of the rate hikes, he actually tightened faster than Volcker did. So it's, you know, it like it's not a, it's not a surprise that inflation came down. Like I think they were successful at defeating it in the short term. But what you need to defeat an inflationary psychology is a very severe recession. The recession that we got in 81, 82, after Volcker's rate hikes, was exceptionally severe. It was like minus 6% GDP. It was it was a hurricane of a recession. And extremely and, fast, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we need some we need something like that ultimately to get rid of inflation. But it's it's not going to be a concern for the next couple of years. Yeah, I mean, it's ultimately a question of, I guess, personal preference and po- politics, but a, a world in which we have 3% inflation, but there's no recession and the economy in a nominal sense is very strong. I would say that's preferable to 0% inflation and, you know, the the perennial need for severe recessions. But again, that's, that's you know, that's just a, it's a kind of a personal preference. The economy in the 1980s, I think you know, everyone worked in an auto plant that was financed with short-term bank debt, and now people work on an online platform selling stuff to other customers, and they finance themselves in the equity markets or something. So it's 
it's a little different or you know long-term bond yields okay so recession call you're still bullish you're still bullish rates you're bullish the short end are you bullish the long end what do, what do you make of the supply narrative about so I'm a little surprised at how much the long end is rallied. I, w- I wouldn't have predicted that. I thought that we would have had more of a bull steepener. And the, the curve really hasn't steepened in this move lower. It's been more of a parallel move. So I'm a little surprised about that. And that might have something to do with supply. I, it's very possible. But the one thing I was saying about the supply narrative all along, you know, oil and bonds are very similar. Because it's very easy to compute supply, right? Like oil, you know where all the oil is coming from. You can calculate it. You can calculate supply. Bonds, you can figure out how much we're going to issue based on the size of the deficit. So you know what supply is. But you never know what demand is. You never know what demand is. And demand is something that can change very quickly based on psychology, right? So that's what happened in the bond market. Like people said, look, like 5% on 10s look pretty cheap. Like I think that's, I I think that, you know, that suddenly has value. And like people's perception of value just sort of, excuse me, changed overnight. You know, back, back in the financial crisis, when we had TARP, when we, you know, issued $780 billion worth of bonds to pay for TARP, and we were running $1.8 trillion deficits, you know, I had pretty much just started the Daily Dirt app, and I was looking at this, and I'm like, these auctions are going to fail, like interest rates are going to shoot higher. Yeah. None of that happened because we were in this huge risk-off environment. The stock was stock market was melting down, and people showed up at the auctions to buy debt, and the auctions were massively oversubscribed. So you cannot measure demand. You cannot predict when people are going to show up and buy that paper. Yes, agreed. Demand is so much harder to supply. But in macroeconomic conditions, when there is basically a depression in 2008 and inflation and growth fall and banks are melting down, there is a, you can predict, or, you know, in periods like that, that's a time when there's a demand for safe assets, such well, as you know, treasuries. In time when, when the economy is growing 9% a year nominally and, you know, AI companies are octupling their earnings year over year. It's a little harder to, to get that, you know, two percent in a two percent ten year in a depression is more attractive than five percent ten year in a booming economy. Maybe I don't know. No, that's true. But I think that, you know, looking back fifteen years ago at that period of time, you know, it, it with hindsight we can say, yeah, I mean, it makes total sense. We were in a depression, and then obviously people would want bonds. But that's not what people were thinking at the time. You know, at the time people were. Dude, the whole hedge fund community was buying these things called CMS caps, right? Which were basically call options on interest rates. Cost of maturity swaps. Yeah. Yeah. So they they just like like the whole hedge fund community was massively short duration and just got rinsed on that trade. Prevailing wisdom at the time. Yeah. Wow. That I mean, that is with the benefit hindsight. A pretty dumb thing to do. <laughs> what else is on your mind? I do want to talk about international versus U.S. Sure. Um, you know, before we got on the call, you, you know, you kind of asked me what my longs were. And I said, really, like, pretty much nothing in the U.S. Like, I'm long international and short the U.S. in pretty big size for kind of for idiosyncratic reasons, but also because I do think that you need some mean reversion in this U.S. versus international outperformance. I think that's going to happen. 
I have a position in India. I have positions in Europe. I have positions in Argentina. I have positions in EM. Like basically I'm running, you know, my whole long portfolio is overseas and short is US. So why is that trade going to work now when it didn't work in 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018, and on and on? You know, like people people have been saying this on CNBC for a long time. And they continue to be invited, but it hasn't worked. Why, why now? Well, I don't know, but I think we'll know the answer in about a year or two. You know, it might, I'll speculate, it might have something to do with the election. It might have something to do with 2024. It might have to do something to do if we get a recession. I, you know, it might have something to do with politics in Europe moving right. Might have something to do with that. I mean, these are all possibilities, but you know, some of these some of these European positions I've held for a little while, and they've kind of been forming a base and not making lower lows. And, you know, it just, you know, I don't know. I think it's okay, so, But why, I guess, you know, what, what gives you confidence now? If, if you've had a preference, you like Europe over US, but there's a catalyst for now is a time where you're not. You don't, don't know. know. Okay. But so then why, why do it? It's really more about risk reward in asymmetry you know what i mean like it just just kind of a dumb example but if if you if you could buy something and you thought the max downside was 15 percent, but the max upside was 100 percent, like you would do that trade you know mm-hmm. what i mean if you if you were looking at a trade and the max downside was 70 percent, the max upside was 30 percent, like that's not as attractive so i just Looking at it from a risk reward standpoint, which is also part of valuations, I mean, valuations give you an idea of risk reward. You know, stocks across the globe are cheap, stocks are expensive here. So you have a valuation cushion. So all that matters. They're cheap in China. They're very cheap in China. What do you think about that? Yeah. Do you know my thoughts on China? Are you baiting me here? I forgot them. Now I'm, maybe I'm remembering them. Yeah, I'm I'm a huge China bear. I don't I don't think I don't think China's going to have a stock market in five years. I think it's I I think that, it, wow, you're you're more bearish than the biggest bears. Describe that scenario for me and and why. I mean, this is really more of a political question. I mean, you know, she is dictator. It, it's he's getting more and more authoritarian. Like I don't know, people like reflexively try to pick bottoms in China. They're like, ooh, it's you know the chart looks like it's bottoming. I'm going to buy K Web. Yeah, and I'm like you don't realize that this is a country with basically zero private property rights, where executives are disappearing all over the place, where it's complete social control. Like, is this a place you really want to be investing? You know what I mean? Like Perth Coal, you know, I'm sure you know Perth, yep. right? You know, she has the FRDM ETF, right? Yep. Emerging markets minus China, yeah. It, minus China, minus Russia, minus Turkey, minus a couple other places. Okay, minus others. And now everyone's minus Russia for obvious reasons. Yeah. So it was original before. But that is that has been that has been a massive success. You know, her thesis on that, like ten years ago or whenever it was, was that countries with political and social and economic freedoms would flourish while the other ones would stagnate. Like that is that is played out exactly according to her plan. And I haven't looked at the numbers, but I, I got to imagine that her ETF, her index is massively outperformed. You know, I'm sure industry. it has because the biggest component of EM indices is China and that yeah. has performed horribly. But everything for a price, right? And what about 
is, is, is there any sentiment thing? What if the biggest China bull in the world went on CNBC and said, I'm, I'm hanging up my stripes. And you saw a thousand people on Twitter who were China bears gleefully exciting that K-Web is at $10, right? Well, I mean, you know, the funny thing is, is that that actually happened a year ago. Like something similar happened. Like, do you remember in the Chinese Communist Party meeting when yes. Putin Cao was sitting there and they like escorted him out, right? Yes. That was the bottom in K-Web. Like that was the ding-dong lows in K-Web. And that, now, of course, it's made lower lows since then. But yeah, I mean, these these sentiment things matter. So, you know, in the scenario that you described, like, for sure, I would pay attention to that. But I don't really consider myself a trader anymore. Okay. You know, I'm not, not going to pick a bottom and sell it up 20%. Like, that's not really what I do. So I'm just structurally bearish, and I don't want to touch it. So if you're not a trader, what are you? When you like, what is... What are you when you're doing the trade of long rest of the world, short U.S. or short Blackstone? What are those investments or traders? Explain how you're, you're, you're not a trader as you used to be. My, my time horizon is almost never shorter than six months. Six months at a minimum, six months to a year, and sometimes three to five years. Like Argentina, like, you know, you read my stuff. I, you know, I started talking about Malay way before everybody else was. True. And I took the positions in Argentina and some people at the election exited those positions. I'm like, no, you don't understand. Like if we get dollarization in Argentina, they're going to have 15% GDP growth for the next five years. This is going to, this is going to be like a 10 X or 20 X trade. So, you know, I'm, you know, I'm thinking much longer term on this stuff. So. Got it. But when you're short, you, you can't be a long-term short, you know, right. Cause Blackstone doubles in six months. You got to you got to have a cover and, and you got to have a, a plan there. So I mean, I, I'm, you're I'm, not a short I might get stopped out. That's possible. I might yeah. get stopped out. But I, you know, with with Blackstone, I'm going to buy puts, so I'm not going to be naked oh. short. So fair, fair. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I forgot about that. And then, so are you are you wildly bullish Argentina? Is that the most the thing you're most bullish on? Yeah, I have a pretty I have a pretty a pretty big position there. Yeah, I didn't even really look at it every day. You know, that's I, I, the best way to do it. Any, anything else in stocks? Do you have any sec- sector sector views, individual stocks names? I don't want to say something stupid. You know, I mean, look, like like a million other people, I think the Magnificent Seven should underperform. And I mean, small cap's done really well in the last month. There was, there was actually Bespoke put out a tweet that said that small cap went from a 52-week low to a 52-week high in 48 days. You know, so small cap has done well. And I would like to think that we've kind of made the turn the turn in the style box you know i think i think that large cap growth is uh going to underperform small cap value for the next x number of years it kind of seems like we made the turn but i don't have high conviction on that yeah it's it's tough obviously you want to buy the great companies at ultra cheap prices but you know you have a cheap value stocks and then you have growth stocks that are way more expensive but the value stocks need to grow their earnings and if they grow their earnings, they're going to be they're, they're not going to have a five PE. You know how do you get around that problem of the companies that have five PEs? Most of the time, you're going to find that diamond in the rough. But most of the time, much crappier companies. The companies have, you know, a twenty or a thirty PE. And like if you're buying as a category, like the small cap, the value ETF, that's definitely going to be true. Obviously, you can find those diamonds in the roughs. But yeah, how do you, I know I know you're a value guy. How do you think about that? There's periods of time when value works, kind of hard to believe, but it's true. 
worked from two, 2003 value was not only did value outperform growth value did amazing on an absolute basis. You know what I mean? Like that was, if you were a program trader from 2000 to 2000, you got your head blown off because you were doing these risk programs like where you get like the sell basket would be uh, value and the buy basket would be growth. And you, you'd, you cross them on the close and the next day it would like go like 500 basis points in your face. Like that was, you know, you had big divergences between value and growth and that can, can that can happen again, you know? Yeah. But is it mo- in a recession? Don't value stocks fall the most because they're the most economically cyclical. I don't know if you can make any generalizations about that. I don't know. You're bearish the max seven. I mean, how do you, it's tough. It's tough. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to take a position. Like it's insanity. Like I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to short Apple. I'm not going to short Microsoft. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just like, that's, that's a loser trade. That's, that's the kind of trade that losers do. You know yeah. I mean? Like I'm just, I'm not going to do that. Okay. Okay. Thanks for clarifying. Yeah. Well, in that sense of you're not taking a position, but just it's like speculation. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it very much could be, very much could be true. What about oil? Oil, I think, has found a, a short-term bottom. I think we found a short-term bottom around 70. You know, I'm still, I have a bearish bias towards oil, which I think if you are if you believe that we're going to have a recession, you would have a bearish bias. But like I said, I think we found some support around here. So yeah, we'll see what happens. Hey, everyone. We're about to get back in the action. But before we do, let me give you a lowdown on what's been brewing at Blockworks. Come March next year in the heart of London, we're bringing together hundreds of the world's heavyweight asset managers. I'm talking about the big hitters, fund managers, allocators, payment providers, and the major high-frequency traders. They'll all be converging at Digital Asset Summit London, the mother of all digitally-focused conferences in the institutional space. If you're curious about what the big money is up to in the digital asset scene, this is the event for you. We're diving deep into the intersection of macroeconomics and crypto, dissecting where we're at at the market cycle, and we'll be getting into the nitty gritty of real world assets. So think stable coins. I'm going to be there and so are the forward guide superstars. Michael Howell is going to be there. There's a rumor that Joseph Wang is going to be there. I don't know who started that rumor, but people are saying that. We're also getting into the minds of allocators, so you get a front row seat to what the big crypto money managers are cooking up these days. And because you're a dedicated Forward Guidance listener, here's an exclusive treat. Use code FG20 to get 20% off. Just hit that link at the end of this episode, so gear up, because I'm looking forward to seeing you in sunny London town come March. Thanks, let's get back to the interview. What's the most interesting thing in this world of sentiment? Because obviously, my Twitter algorithm feeds me feeds me a different media diet than you know your algorithm serves you. But I find the most dominant narrative is not necessarily bulls taking a victory lap, but soft landing people taking a victory lap, which I think is well-deserved. I mean, the, the doomerism over the past two years has you know, thankfully not, not played out. That doesn't mean it you know, was crazy to have, have worries about. But I, I see people constantly just on Twitter dunking and uh, about talking about how, you know, everyone who doubted the soft landing was wrong, which they were. But, well, it's too soon to say that. But, but you know, the, the, the soft landing probability assigned by the general population a year ago was obviously too, too low. It's, it's much higher than it was. But I, I see the, the consensus there, but I don't see as much consensus about saying buy stocks. You know, obviously the, the implication is buy stocks because soft landing is bullish for stocks. But do you see it actively about people talking about, 
I mean, who, who, like, what, what are the kinds of people? What are they saying when you? When yes. You so I've I've seen some victory laps, but it's not really among the hedge fund guys or the fast guys or stuff like that. It's really among the index fund promoters, the optimists, right? You see the optimists on Twitter, right? I don't want to name names. I don't want to get names. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, I know. I know you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, but I saw. You're, we're we're getting we're getting a lot of victory laps around those guys. Is you know as the market got closer to the all time highs, they're like you know we're three percent off the all time highs, and if you had just stayed long, a dollar cost average is the easiest thing in the world. And blah blah. You know I saw plenty of stuff like that. So explain why you doubt the dollar cost average index bros. I under because <laughs> I think I, I think it was one of your recent daily dirt naps talking talking about that and you said about how you you know bought it you bought it you bought an index fund in 1997 but you have a different framework and then we can use that to a transition to your most recent book that comes out recently no worries which is about sort of personal finance because isn't it true jared that yes talking about this stock versus that stock that is fun and you know you and i do this for a living and it's very entertaining but being the actually beating the stock market is very hard and that most people should be in an index fund for a true stress-free financial life. What about that claim is is bogus? Can you debunk that for me? If you invest in an index, you get the returns of the index, which are amazing, right? The index beats everything. You get the returns of the index. But you also get the volatility of the index, which sucks. Like the S&P is a pretty volatile index. You know, like Right now, the VIX is at 13 or something. Usually, it's at 16, which means it moves about 1% a day. It moves about 16% a year. Like, that's pretty volatile. And this Vanguard, Vanguard in particular, Vanguard has some marketing. I've seen it on LinkedIn. But they they draw out a chart of the S&P over time where, you know, you take this big drawdown in 2000, this big drawdown in 2008. Then it goes on and makes new high and a drawdown in the pandemic and it's all-time highs. And they say, see, if you just held on. If you just held on through all of this, you would have a pile of money. But you can't hold on. You can't hold on through a 50% drawdown. You can't. Like, it's impossible. There's a tiny percentage of people that can do it. But, like, it takes faith. You ha- It's really, it's, I wouldn't even call it, like, index bros. I would call it, like, faith bros. Because you have to have faith that the market always comes back. And I don't have that faith. You know, we had 9% returns in equities in the 20th century. A lot of people think that's repeatable, right? So we're going to have 9% returns in the 21st century. But what if it's not repeatable? What if the conditions that led to the performance of the 20th century are not present for the, for the performance of the 21st century? So, I mean, there's no rule that says that the stock market has to return 9% a year. There's no rule that it says it has to be the best asset class in the world. Like, I don't necessarily believe that, you know? So talking about the book, you know, I talk a a lot about ways to mitigate that volatility. See, the thing about investing is it's not as important in what you invest in as long as you stay invested. You have to stay invested. And in order to stay invested, you have to mitigate volatility and you have to mitigate your drawdowns so you don't panic out of an investment and stop compounding. That's the worst thing in the world is to stop compounding. Okay, but so Jared, what about if someone, they always are invested, they're always invested, you say they're always invested in the stock market, but they move out, they basically do the opposite of what you, what you try and do by following sentiment. 
they they invest in at ARC at the top, and then when ARC crashes, then they get into oil stocks. And then when oil stocks crash, then they get into AI stocks or SPACs or crypto or so. You know what I mean? Because a lot of people are always invested, but they they not only drastically underperform the market, they probably lose money. Wouldn't those people be better in an index fund or, or a, a rules-based thing? You need to be in something that gives you some sharp ratio, which is superior to that of the S&P, and some max drawdown, which is superior to that than the S&P, right? Like any asset that is going to have routine 50% drawdowns four times in a century, that's routine. It's going to happen twice in your lifetime. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it, it's it's better to invest in something that gets 4% a year and stay invested than something that gets 8% a year and you get stopped out of it every 10 years. So I think what you're saying is not like index bros say everyone should work out every day and eat healthily. And you're saying you're not disagreeing, you know, they, they would live longer if they did that. You're not disagreeing with that claim. You're saying it's unrealistic for people to do that. So yeah. I actually, yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yes. Yes. So what should people do? They should do the awesome portfolio. What's that? The awesome portfolio is 20% stocks, 20% bonds, 20% cash, 20% gold, and 20% real estate. And since 1971, this portfolio has returned 8.1%, which is just 1% less than the S&P. Nice starting point there in 1971. Well, then you have to start there because that's when you could own gold. So, yeah. Like, but that's like starting Bitcoin has performed 200% a year since 2009. When it was, you know what I mean? Like past, talk about past performance. You couldn't own gold before 1971. Yeah. Like that's, that's the earliest you can start. So I'm with, saying if you started at 1981, it would be a lot worse. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Anyway, let me finish. Yeah. So that portfolio returns 8.1% with half the volatility of an 80-20 portfolio. But you're start, starting in 1971 when you know gold had the biggest bull run ever. No, it's you're you're missing the point. Like you had to start in 1971 because prior to 1971 there was no private ownership of gold. I, I understand, but I, I'm I'm saying that those conditions might not be repeated. About gold has been fixed for 5,000 years, and finally we are floating it, and there's not enough gold in every central bank. Well, for sure. I mean, you know, maybe nothing is repeatable. Maybe we become a communist country and private ownership of stocks is prohibited. Maybe the government confiscates gold again. Like, I mean, but based on the time frame that we have, which is a pretty long time frame. I mean, 53 years is pretty long. Like that's a good enough data set. Like you have a portfolio, which, and by the way, I forgot to mention the max drawdown in any given year is 12%. And the drawdown in 2008 was 9.5%. So that's good. So bonds, cash, which are, you know, kind of, kind of similar, but not really. I assume the cash is earning the, the, the cash rate, whatever interest rates are, gold, real estate, and stocks. You don't think it's a little light on stocks? No, I think it's exactly the right amount. Okay. I feel like, I feel like some, and I'm not saying that just because you were bullish in October of 2022 means that most people should have been bullish, but I I feel like it requires, you know, much more intestinal fortitude to do that than to just own an index fund, hundred percent stocks for your whole life. Okay. Yeah. You, you disagree? You agree? Yeah. Yeah. Why, why would, why would it take more intestinal fortitude to hold something that has a max drawdown of 12%? Oh no! I'm no! I'm 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 talking about being long stocks 
in October of 2022. Spend, oh, okay. Trading in and out of them. No, I'm not talking about the portfolio. Oh, okay. No, no, yeah, I wouldn't say that, no. Yeah. Okay, so what else? What else in the book? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, the book is about minimizing financial stress, okay? And in the beginning, I talk about people's attitudes towards money, which is really the most important part of the book. And then I get into the different types of financial stress. And one is debt stress, and the other is risk stress. And debt, you can break it down into mortgages, credit cards, car loans, student loans, stuff like that. And risk, I have a discussion of risk, and then I talk about capital markets, and I talk about the awesome portfolio. The main takeaway from the book is that, you know, we have a personal finance industry in the United States. Dave Ramsey's a big part of it, Susie Orman, Robert Kiyosaki, a lot of these people. Plus, you have like thousands of personal finance bloggers. They all say the same thing. And they say you should not buy coffee, that you should iron your own shirts instead of taking it to the dry cleaner. You should make pizza at home instead of ordering Domino. You should have an obsessive focus on small expenses, right? Because it's all these million little financial decisions that you make that add up to money in the end. It's actually not true. It's not true. If the opposite is true. If you get the big decisions right, the house, the car, and the student loans, then you don't have to worry about the small stuff. And I can prove it to you mathematically, right? So talk about buying coffee on the way into work. I buy a Dunkin' Donuts every day, $3.70. $3.70, days a year, that's 900 bucks. I do that my entire life, 40 years, that's 36,000 bucks. I invest that, I end up with like 150 or 200,000 bucks. The math checks out. I can have 200,000 bucks if I stop drinking coffee, if I stop buying coffee. Problem is, is that that is a luxury. It's a small luxury. It's a teeny tiny luxury. Something that I enjoy, right? And what, when you ask people to give up a small luxury that they have every day in order for some bigger goal, you're asking them to do this austerity for 40 years and give up things that they enjoy. They can't do it. They can't do it. They won't stick to the plan. They'll, they'll give up. But what people can do is give up large luxuries, okay? People can get a smaller house. You can get a house that's 500 square feet smaller costs $100,000 less, and then they won't pay $120,000 more in interest over the life of the loan, which is like 100 years worth of coffee, okay? So it's all about getting the big decisions right, and then you don't have to worry about the little stuff. That's the math. That makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, it makes so much sense to me that I don't even understand the opposite case. <laughs> Uh, I, I get. I guess it's it's that you know if if you're really on the ropes, you need to have no luxuries in your life whatsoever. So situations like that, you know, when let's say you have somebody with a huge amount of debt, three hundred thousand dollars in student loans or something like that, like austerity is not going to fix your problems. Okay, doesn't matter how much coffee you make at home or iron your shirts, it, it's not going to fix the problem. And I'll give you an example. One of the worst things that you can do in the United States is go to a third-tier law school, okay? Lots of law schools in the United States. We have more lawyers in the United States than any country in the world per capita. The average, the average country has one lawyer per 600 people. We have one lawyer per 250 people, and it's driven wages down. A lot of people think if I become a lawyer, I'm going to make a lot of money. 
There's a there's lawyers in my town on food stamps. There are lawyers on food stamps, and they have multiple six figures in debt. Okay, so the solution is not to give up coffee. That's not going to fix your problems. You have to do something else. You have to get another job that makes more money so you can earn your way out of that debt. That's how you get out of it. And that's actually there's a chapter in the book called the revenue side which talks about the fact that, you know, usually when people are trying to figure out how to make more money, they cut expenses. Say, well, I can cut this and I can cut this and I can cut this and I can save $3,000 a year. Or you can get a second job or you can change careers and do something else or you can start a business. You can make more money, which has a bigger impact on your bottom line and also is more fun than cutting expenses. That makes a lot of sense to me. And then also, I think that on the actual facts of what is better financially, I think that's absolutely right. But maybe psychologically, people need the the act of saying, I don't get any coffee. I'm the type of person I care so much about, you know, writing myself financially that I'm not going to even get any coffee. It's a psychological. Yeah, absolutely. People, People think they're not saving money unless they are physically uncomfortable. Right. Like, so what they do is they go home and it's the winter. It's like December. It's almost Christmas. So it's cold and they turn the thermostat down to 58 and they put a couple pairs of socks on. They sit a blanket over their over themselves on the couch and they're like, I'm saving money. Yeah, you're saving like five bucks. You know, (laughs) like turn on the heat. That's what it's for. It's not. It could have a $15 a month subscription that they're not using. Yeah, they want to feel it. Can you talk, I don't know exactly how to express about this, but just the fact that we are not sort of homo economicus, like perfectly rational beings, like it's, you can't, you can't go walking around and say, oh, that thing costs $8, but to me it has a utility of $9, so I'm going to buy it, and I just made it, you know, people, you're, people, we're not robots, we buy things, we do things, we trade things, because we have feelings, we have instincts, and maybe that's not perfect, but it's, would it would it be unwise to try and pretend to be a robot when you're not actually, you know, no, absolutely you're, not. Yeah, no, yeah. I don't, I don't think, I don't think the goal. And by the way, this is the goal of the personal finance bloggers, right. Is to turn people into perfectly rational economic actors. That's not the goal. The goal is to take your irrationality and to harness it in ways yeah. that are useful. You know what I mean? Which getting back to the investment side, what I do with my newsletter, that's what I try to do with my newsletter. I th- my newsletter isn't about making people rational stock pickers. It's about profiting from other people's irrationality. You know? Absolutely. What would you say is the biggest irrationality in personal finance? Not necessarily investing, but personal. I mean, we, we named one of focusing on the small things. But what is that the biggest one? Is there a bigger one? It's basically the idea that people think that small risks are big and big risks are small. People don't have the ability to evaluate risk. And I'll give you one in a non-financial sense, right? So you don't have any kids. I don't have any kids. But what is the worst thing for a parent? Like the, wor- the if you had a kid, what is the worst possible thing to happen? It's for your kid to be walking outside and get snatched up by Chester the molester and get kidnapped, right? That would be the worst thing in the world. Yeah. So Parents don't let their kids walk to school, even if it's like a quarter of a mile away, 
they put them in the car and drive them to school. Do you know how many kids are kidnapped by strangers every year in the United States? 115. You know how many people are struck by lightning in the United States? 80. It's about the same as getting struck by lightning. So, but then they take their kids and they put them in the car yeah. and 35,000 people a year die in car accidents. So just the act of doing that is completely irrational. You have a small risk of your child getting kidnapped. You think it's a huge risk and a huge risk of getting into a car accident. And you think it's a small risk and people do that in their financial lives. They think that small risks are big and big risks are small. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think people care about a trade and this trade is working much more than they care about how big is the trade. You know, if it's such a good trade, you should size it up. If it's a bad trade, you should do it with, you know, a tiny amount of your portfolio. No, that's true. I mean, they'll have a, they'll have a small trade on some crypto, some shit coin or something like that. And they'll be super happy because they made a hundred, like a thousand bucks. And then they have like an IRA with $300,000 in the S&P 500 and they're getting shit housed and they're losing like a hundred thousand bucks and they don't even think about that. So, yeah. But is it ra- maybe rational to do that? Because if if they think about the S&P 500 and how much money that is and, oh, my God, I just lost a car or whatever, then that would force them to get out of the market. Maybe it's good that they stick with their little crypto. Well, price. the one cat, that's not the best example in the world because yeah. you do have to think in different time frames, right? So you have short-term money and medium-term money and long-term money, and they fall into different buckets. But, you know, that wasn't the best example, but whatever. So. Yeah. What What do you think about crypto, by the way? I... My not, you know, you are a good, very good sentiment analyst. I you openly confess that I am not one and I do not consider myself to be a good sentiment analyst. But to me, it kind of seems like the early stages of crypto bull market where people are not that bullish and the price action is much more bullish than the narrative. That could be changing, but I feel like, you know, you're not you're not seeing people go, go on. I mean, look, the, the CEO of Coinbase did, talk about a tweet about how Bitcoin was advancing humanity. But these things, you know what I mean? When a bull market starts, it's not like it ends instantly. It's it's these, it's a process. The only thing I'll say is Bitcoin is at 43,000. People are a lot less bullish now with Bitcoin at 43,000 than they were two years ago when Bitcoin was at 43,000. Absolutely. Yeah. So that is bullish. More, bull, more bullish to you yeah. than it was two years ago, but you yeah. were bullish two years ago, so. Yeah. So would you say you're neutral? Neutral. Neutral. Got it. And what about, you know, one of your favorites, gold? Yeah, it's kind of a longer discussion. You know, I mean, we put in those new highs a couple Sundays ago in the Asia session, and then it collapsed on the 1980. We're trading about 2030 right now. You know, talk about time horizons. Like for me, that's the ultimate long-term time horizon. So um, I don't trade it. I just hold it. Yeah, got it. Got it. Makes sense. Well, the book is No Worries, How to Live a Stress-Free Financial Life. And of course, your newsletter, Daily Dirt Nap. People should check that out. Jared, thanks so much. Thank you. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at BlockWorks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined.